Hi, I'm Gary from Stonyfield, the organic yogurt company. Do you know what that certified organic label on your food really means? Learn all about that label and why organic is worth it at stonyfield.com. We're proud to be making organic yogurt and honored to support Living on Earth. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Energy independence is a hot topic on the presidential campaign trail, but experts say we're nearly there already, whoever wins the White House. The potential for North America to be self-sufficient in energy and oil and gas, and the United States potentially in 10 to 15 years. This is like an earthquake in the mindset of the global energy community and the U.S. energy community. Oil companies already want to export U.S. crude. Also, some Wyoming town folks say mining coal has saved their economy. Gillette depends hugely on the coal industry. They're a great corporate citizen. They contribute well to our communities. The coal industry statewide has built a billion dollars worth of schools. But some ranchers say coal is ruining their water. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In these closing weeks of the presidential campaign, energy continues to be a flashpoint in the debates between President Barack Obama and former Governor Mitt Romney. One testy exchange at the Hofstra University Town Hall debate October 16th was set off by a question on gas prices to the president. Your energy secretary... Stephen Chu has now been on record three times stating it's not policy of his department to help lower gas prices. Do you agree with Secretary Chu that this is not the job of the Energy Department? The most important thing we can do is to make sure we control our own energy. So here's what I've done since I've been president. We have increased oil production to the highest levels in 16 years. Natural gas production is the highest it's been in decades. We have seen increases in coal production and coal employment. But what I've also said is we can't just produce traditional sources of energy. We've also got to look to the future. That's why we doubled fuel efficiency standards on cars. That means that in the middle of the next decade, any car you buy, you're going to end up going twice as far on a gallon of gas. That's why we've doubled clean energy production, like wind and solar and biofuels. And all these things have contributed to us lowering our oil imports to the lowest levels in 16 years. But Governor Romney wasn't buying the president's pitch and charged the Obama administration has reduced oil and gas production on federal lands and cut the number of drilling permits. I want to make sure we use our oil, our coal, our gas our nuclear, our renewables. I believe very much in our renewable capabilities. Ethanol, wind, solar will be an important part of our energy mix. But what we don't need is to have the president keeping us from taking advantage of oil, coal, and gas. This has not been Mr. Oil or Mr. Gas or Mr. Coal. Talk to the people that are working in those industries. I was in coal country. People grab my arms and say, please, save my job. The head of the EPA said, you can't build a coal plant. You'll virtually, it's virtually impossible given our regulations. When the president ran for office, he said, if you build a coal plant, you can go ahead, but you'll go bankrupt. That's not the right course for America. Let's take advantage of the energy resources we have, as well as the energy sources for the future. And if we do that, if we do what I'm planning on doing, which is getting us energy independent, 
North America energy independence within eight years, you're going to see manufacturing jobs come back because our energy is low cost. Very little of what Governor Romney just said is true. We've opened up public lands. We're actually drilling more on public lands than in the previous administration. And my, the previous president was an oil man. And natural gas isn't just appearing magically. We're encouraging it and working with the industry. And when I hear Governor Romney say he's a big coal guy, I mean, keep in mind, when Governor, when you were Ma Governor of Massachusetts, you stood in front of a coal plant and pointed at it and said, this plant kills, and took great pride in shutting it down. And now suddenly you're a big champion of coal. Governor Romney stuck to his guns. Production on government land of oil is down 14 percent, and production on gas is, is down 9 percent. It's just I, not true. It's absolutely true. Look, there's no question but that the people recognize that we have not produced more oil and gas on federal lands and in federal waters. And coal, coal production is not up. Coal jobs are not up. I was just at a coal facility where some 1,200 people lost their jobs. The right course for America is to have a true all-of-the-above policy. I don't think anyone really believes that you're a person who's going to be pushing for oil and gas and coal. Well, the presidential candidates may debate U.S. energy independence, but there may be less of an energy shortfall than the heated rhetoric would suggest. The evidence for that? A group of six major oil companies, including BP and Shell, has just applied for permits to begin exporting U.S. crude oil abroad, starting with sending some of North Dakota's light sweet crude to Canada, where refiners will pay a higher price. If permits are granted, this would mark the first time in decades that oil companies were selling significant amounts of U.S. crude internationally. For some inside intelligence on the state of the American energy economy, we turn to Joe Stanislaw, economist and independent senior advisor to Deloitte. Joe Stanislaw, welcome to Living on Earth. Uh, thank you for having me, Steve. Oil companies are selling uh, U.S. oil abroad. What do you make of this news? It's quite exciting news in many ways and challenging news. There's a different mindset in the world of energy today than there was five years ago or ten years ago. The United States is producing more and more oil and more and more natural gas. We're going from a mindset of scarcity to not surplus, but to real supply potential in the United States. That's a different mindset. Is this a momentary bump in the oil supply, or you think this is a real trend now? I would call this a tectonic shift. The potential for North America to be self-sufficient in energy and oil and gas. In the United States, potentially, in 10 to 15 years, this is really a major shift. So the whole world of energy has just changed, then, is what you're telling me. It has. Simply put, it has. This is like an earthquake in the mindset of the global energy community and the U.S. energy community. What's causing this tectonic shift? Why do we suddenly have so much oil compared to what we've had in the past? You know, we've known about this oil shale, this shale natural gas, for seven decades or longer. We've known it's down there. We had no way of getting it out. Technology has changed and technology advances. We have something called horizontal drilling. That's when you put a well straight down and you say, I want to go left or I want to go right, 90 degrees. And you can make that shaft turn left 90 degrees or right 90 degrees and go four or five miles. Then you tie that to something else called fracking that can go into that shaft. And fracking is controversial with many people, but you combine fracking with horizontal drilling, you've just changed the game. Why has this happened? I'm going to use a terrible term, but I mean it in a very positive way. Because of what I call crazy technology entrepreneurs. <laughs> These are the people who owned that acreage with those mineral rights and said, I have an asset, but I have no way of getting it out. 
So these, these people worked on this to produce this technology. And it was small, I'm going to say, it was the smaller companies and some of the small oil folks who did this and the big guys bought into it and are now pushing it globally because the potential is huge. These crazy technology entrepreneurs exist all over the energy space, on the solar side, the heat pump side, the geothermal side, the efficiency side, etc. That's part of this tectonic shift. Now, where is this oil going? Is this oil just going to Canada or, or the world? We have actually been exporting crude oil to Canada before. Very small quantities, usually less than 100,000 barrels a day. And there are conditions for that. One is you have to show economic and technical reasons why you can't use it yourself, so you want to export it. You have to be able to stop that export at a moment's notice. The real issue is, as we go down the road, two years, five years, 10 years, will that expand from Canada to other countries? And where might it go then? It can go to a variety of markets. It can go to different parts of South America, but probably Europe. Definitely it could go to China. Uh, you actually have people discussing port facilities on the West Coast, primarily in Canada, to ship Canadian crude, which they can export, obviously, towards Asia, which means primarily China or, or Japan. They're testing the waters now because these companies have what I would call stranded oil in the sense of being stranded to get the real value for the oil they actually have. You have all this oil sitting in the United States, it can't go to the proper market. So the companies who produce it want to get more value, thus export becomes a route. So the little toe in the water, which is Canada, by all these companies, may become a foot in the water and then more going forward. So both major presidential candidates, President Barack Obama, uh, Governor Romney, are talking a lot about energy independence. What do you think about this idea of energy independence? Well, this mindset change, it's, this is a hard adjustment. I thought I would never say we might become independent or self-sufficient. But I've been saying it for four or five years. We have the potential to do that. Can we realize it's a different question, but we have the actual potential to do that. That's significant. This means economic development and growth. Think about oil and gas. Think about gas, natural gas. You know, this is a major fuel for manufacturing industries. And it also helps us make the adjustments down the road to adjust to a different world, which may be less carbon world. And this can help that process by having more robust growth in the United States. Joe, can you clarify something for me? What's the difference in your mind between energy independence and energy self-sufficiency? I'm very pleased you brought this up, actually. You hear energy independence and people think, oh, we have our own oil and gas. Therefore, gasoline can be $1.50 a gallon because we're independent, we can charge what we want. Also, because we have all the energy we need, we don't have to worry about the Middle East, the security of oil flows around the world. Sufficiency doesn't say that. Self-sufficiency says we have our own, we're secure. But the reality of the market is, because we have all we need ourselves in 10 years or 15 years time, we don't control the price of oil. The market controls the price of oil, it's a global price. So we can have all we want here. If there's a major blow up Middle East, the price is gonna go up. How soon do you think we'll be able to produce that much oil to be self-sufficient here? We are right now producing, depending upon the day, between six and a half to seven a million barrels per day. Call it seven. North America can meet all that demand, I think, if we really do everything right and everything clicks correctly, which probably won't happen, by 2020. The United States could probably do it by 2025 or 2030, if we do everything right. Now, when I say that, I mean do things properly, environmentally, for the community, to get the oil out of the ground safely. But equally, when I say that, we have to work on the demand side of the equation as well. The car fuel efficiency, making those homes you know, more insulated. It's also 
looking at the car fleet. Some more cars will be using, become electric vehicles. Some will become natural gas vehicles. If we push in all those dimensions, plus a supply curve, we could be. Now, to do this, Joe, do we need to use all this oil that's in the tar sands of Canada that is so concerning to folks who look at the ecological effect of, of going after those tar sands? If I can do one thing, rather than call it tar sands, I prefer to call it oil sands. Okay. Uh, slight nuance there, but it's an important one. Uh, it's an important potential ingredient for the North American supply chain. There's no question. I think one has to look at the oil sands and compare them to other crude oils and also look at the oil sands and see what they've done the past decade or two in their own environmental footprint, which has been significant. They're not perfect. They're not 100% clean. But the strides they have made in reducing the amount of energy they use to produce the oil sands is significant. They've cut it by over a half. Water usage is down by over a half. The the scar that people worry about, the footprint, visible footprint, they now have continuous land reclamation. You dig from one side, you replace from the other side. This is phenomenal stuff. A lot more work needs to be done, and these companies are working on it. But when you talk about North America being energy self-sufficient by the end of this decade, the oil sands plays into that. Does it mean we stay on oil permanently? I don't think it does. I think it helps us make the path wider to get to where we want to get on the carbon side eventually. And we have to find a way there to have robust growth and think about growth differently. It's not the old growth we had, it's the new growth we want to move to. Joe Stanislaw is an economist and an independent senior advisor to Deloitte. Thank you so much for coming in, Joe. Steve, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Just ahead, international demand for coal is bringing boom times to some Wyoming towns, but some say it's a losing proposition for the land and people. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As many as five deepwater ports in Washington and Oregon are considering building terminals to export American coal to Asia. The coal would come from mines in Wyoming and Montana and would travel by train through the Northwest. That has governmental agencies, environmental groups, Native Americans, labor, and industry in an increasingly fierce debate. Ashley Ahern of the public radio collaborative EarthFix has our story from Wyoming coal country. The U.S. produces about a billion tons of coal every year. Almost half of it is mined here in the Powder River Basin, in the northeastern corner of the state of Wyoming. This is Keith Williams. We're touring the Black Thunder coal mine in Gillette, Wyoming. This is one of the largest open pit mines in the world, and Keith Williams runs it. Down we go. Williams steers the truck along a dirt road 300 feet down into the mine. The first thing that hits you is the sheer size of the operation. Dump trucks as big as California bungalows rumble around us. Back and forth they go, clearing away millions of pounds of clay and dirt to get at the rich coal seam underneath. It's like peering into an ant colony under siege. And then we arrive at the core of the mine. Yeah, it's the big one. It's the queen bee. It's the, it's the big machine. We get out of the truck and stand in front of what's called a drag line. It looks like a crane attached to an apartment building, swiveling back and forth with a giant bucket suspended from one end to scoop earth. All of this to get to the black gold buried beneath. Some of this coal could end up being shipped out of terminals on the Washington coast. Within a 60-mile radius from where we're standing, there are 12 other strip mines like this one. They encircle the city of Gillette like a string of black pearls, or gaping holes in the earth. But where some see gaping holes, Others see jobs. Gillette depends hugely on the coal industry. 
Tom Lubnow is a state representative. He came to Gillette when he was six months old and has seen the city boom as coal companies pumped money into the local economy. Uh, they're a great corporate citizen. They contribute well to our communities in terms of a lot of things. The coal industry statewide has built a billion dollars worth of schools. The coal industry employs 5,000 people in the mines of Campbell County, the center of mining operations in the Powder River coal deposit. The average income here is $60,000 a year. Gillette has become a marvelous place to live. Very low crime rate, marvelous facilities, swimming pools, recreation centers, um, running tracks, parks. Overwhelmingly, people here are proud of the coal industry. It's one of the key economic forces that transformed Gillette from a cow town along the rail line into a mini metropolis amidst these dry, rolling grasslands. The sun's setting as L.J. Turner takes me out for a walk along the creek near his red-roofed ranch house. Well, I've been here all my life, and my family's been here since 1918. Turner and his wife Karen run Red Angus cows and sheep on this 10,000-acre ranch, about 10 miles from the Black Thunder Mine. When I was small, we uh, got our ice out of the creek for the uh, household use. My job was to uh, tamp sawdust around the blocks of ice, and then we'd, we'd have enough ice that uh, it would uh, keep our household needs for the year. Now the creek is a muddy trickle. Turner believes mining has destroyed the underground aquifers that feed this creek and others on his property. He's extended his well down a thousand feet beneath his house, and it's still running dry. Turner's also upset that some of the nearby grazing land he used to lease from the Forest Service has now been leased to the coal companies to be mined. But alongside the local impacts, Turner worries about what burning more fossil fuels will do to the global climate. He says the impacts here are already clear. The first winter that Dad was here in 1919, he said it never got above 20 below for six weeks. And But this last uh, winter, it, uh, it froze up. But it didn't freeze hard. We had uh, green grass in uh, February. And uh, it's just, it's changing, it really is. Turner looks out at a mule deer grazing nearby and pauses for a minute. I'm scared of it. I'm just scared of it. The forces that dictate how much coal is mined and where it ends up being burned are far away from these dry grasslands. U.S. coal consumption is at a 40-year low, largely because of a boom in cheap natural gas. But international demand for coal is expected to rise 65% in the next 20 years or so. The majority of that increase will be in Asia. That has Powder River Basin coal companies looking for ways to get their product across the Pacific as quickly and cheaply as possible. And they're eyeing the Pacific Northwest as the fastest route. I'm Ashley Ahern in Gillette, Wyoming. Ashley's story comes to us from Public Radio's Earth Fix. You can find out more about Wyoming coal by digging into our website, LOE.org. Coming up, how insects rule the world and are responsible for some of the tastes we like in our food. But first, this note on emerging science from Annie Sneed. 
silk. It's smooth, sleek, elegant. It makes expensive shirts and ties, and it can also save lives. When pharmaceutical companies ship drugs around the globe, they have to refrigerate them, all the way from labs in Connecticut or New Jersey where they're made, to remote villages in Madagascar or Zambia where they're used. Refrigeration accounts for 80% of the cost of vaccines. But vaccines and antibiotics are often accidentally exposed to killer heat along the delivery route. As a result, nearly half of the world's vaccines are lost every year. But scientists at Tufts University have discovered that silkworms create an alternative to refrigeration that's more reliable. The silk they spin has many small water-repellent pockets. These pockets trap vaccines and antibiotics like tiny pill bottles and hide them from heat to keep the drugs biologically and chemically stable. Swathed in silk, drugs can withstand temperatures above 110 degrees Fahrenheit for months, possibly even years. Researchers also found a way to fashion a needle out of silk so doctors can use the same silken device to both store and administer the drugs. Silk may be a luxury when you wear it, but sending life-saving drugs around the world dressed in silk hardly seems extravagant. That's this week's note on Emerging Science. I'm Annie Sneed. Well, for the silk we use, we depend on the mulberry tree that feeds the silkworm. And for millennia, insects, such as the silkworm, have in turn helped guide the evolution and defenses of plants. A five-year study from researchers at Cornell University, recently published in Science Magazine, focuses on the critical role insects can play in plant evolution and how speedy that evolution can be. The lead author is Anurag Agarwal, professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Cornell. Essentially, plants are the only group of organisms on the planet that can generate their own energy. And something that we don't often think about is the entire biosphere, all organisms in the food chain, are either directly or indirectly dependent on plants. We don't think of lions as you know, being dependent on plants or particular bird species, but they eat organisms which eat other organisms which fundamentally must rely on plants, eat plants to get their energy. And because of that, there's been tremendous natural selection, tremendous pressure on plants over the eons to develop defenses. Talk to me about the way that plants have evolved uh, alongside insects. Yeah, there's been a long history of circumstantial evidence that many of the traits plants have are adaptations to insect herbivores. If you think about the things we eat, you know, what makes horseradish spicy? Well, horseradish is spicy because of a set of compounds called glucosinolates that we believe have evolved by natural selection to ward off insects. You know, the poisons that make milkweeds so famous, you know, same expectation. What's nicotine? Nicotine is a neurotoxin of tobacco that has evolved by natural selection to ward off insects. Please describe the specifics of your study for us. What were you looking at? Well, what we did is we set out uh, experimental plots here in Ithaca, New York, to examine the impact of insect herbivores on the plants. And we removed insects from half of the plots using an insecticide treatment. And over a very quick period of time, about five years, five generations of the plants we were studying, the common evening primrose, it's a wildflower, removal of insects resulted in the evolution of two very critical plant traits, how early the plants flower 
and the production of a toxin in the fruits of those flowers. When we removed insects, the plants were able to relax those defenses. They flowered earlier, and they produced less of those toxins in their fruits. So how surprised were you by these results? The results that we got, we had anticipated, and it was sort of part of our hypothesis, but what really surprised us was the rapidity of this evolutionary response. Seeing the response in five years was dramatic, and it sort of, you know, it really knocked our socks off in the sense that we know that evolution can be rapid, but to watch it happen, watch the genetic change happen over that period of time was something that surprised us and the rest of the scientific community. I mean, one thinks of evolution, one thinks it takes a long time, for example, to get from, say, the great apes to humans is like millions of years, right? Yeah, and that's right. Evolutionary biology, in a sense, is a historical science. We're trying to piece together often how we got to where we are now by looking into the past. And you're certainly right that most speciation events, that is, when an ancestor gives rise to two new entities that are isolated reproductively, they're, they're new species, often does take thousands to millions of years. In our study, what we were talking about is the rapid adaptation that occurs within a species. And the way one might think about how this might be operative in nature is as the climate changes, as we have a set of good or bad years, if in a particular location there are high pest loads compared to another place where there are, where are low pest loads, we can expect to see rapid change in those populations. If those environmental effects are sustained over hundreds or thousands of years, we might then expect a new species to be born. So seeing such rapid uh, evolution uh, in plants, what do you see as the larger significance of these findings? I think there's a few things that are significant. One is the recognition that evolution occurs all around us. Uh, I think that's an important message for the American public in the sense that there's Surprising to me and many scientists, still some debate about the importance of evolution in the history of the planet and the history of the organisms that we have on the planet. So the fact that we can, in real time, see that change in genes and genotype frequencies over a short period of time is a critical sort of message to the public. From a biological and more academic perspective, one of the things we reported is, um, is something that I think was known to Darwin, and, and he sort of speculated on, but still hasn't cemented itself as dogma among scientists. And that is that on the same time scale that ecological interactions occur, in our study, for example, as the environment changed, the competition among different plants, species that were in our plots was intensified. On that same time scale, there are evolutionary changes that are occurring. And so I think one of the main messages to the academic community is ecology or environmental change and evolution can occur on the same time scale and may, in fact, feed back with one another. I must ask, uh, I mean, what are the implications of your study on how we think about insecticides? Well, um, it's complicated, and I appreciate the question. Insecticides certainly have been a very valuable tool in the production of agricultural crops, and I think what it tells us is that when we take insects out of the picture, uh, using things like insecticides, we are encouraging plants throughout the evolutionary process to relax their defenses. And in fact, uh, this is a story that I think is unfortunately really a big part of worldwide agriculture, and that is that we tend to select varieties of plants to grow that are diminished in their natural defensive capacities. If you take a wild plant that survived out there for millions of years, it typically has a remarkable array of toxins and defensive tactics to ward off pests. 
about 10% of all plants produce hydrogen cyanide. Uh, we know hydrogen cyanide as a very general toxin, an anti-life compound. And this hydrogen cyanide that's in 10% of the plants has no primary function. It doesn't help the plant capture sunlight or produce seeds directly. What hydrogen cyanide does is poison insects that are trying to eat those plants. One of the things that I think we do a little too well is we either on purpose or inadvertently breed crops so that they have relaxed defenses. And that increases our needs and our usage of pesticides, which uh, I think we can all agree is problematic for the environment. Anurag Agarwal is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Cornell University. Thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you. Hearing the birds sing is one of the great pleasures of being out in the country or even in your own garden, if you're lucky enough to have one. But as Bird Notes' Mary McCann points out, even though we can listen and enjoy, human ears can miss a lot. Listen carefully to the song of the Pacific Wren. What we hear as a blur of sound, the Pacific Wren hears as a precise sequence of sounds. That birds can hear so acutely the fine structure of song allows them to convey much information in a short sound. That's probably why, naturalist Rosemary Jealous writes, even the most extensive bird songs seem so brief to us. The bird, with its speeded-up time sense, must feel as if it had sung the equivalent of an operatic aria. Let's listen again, but this time with the song slowed down to one-quarter speed. Pacific wrens may hear the song of other Pacific wrens this way, enabling them to imitate each other. The same would be true for winter wrens of the eastern states and Eurasian wrens. Whatever the species, they remind us that creatures we share the world with read and respond to nature in ways we sometimes cannot see or hear. I'm Mary McCann. And you can check out the pictures of the Pacific Wrens over at our website, LOE.org. Manifesto for a new, more equitable, and more sustainable future. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation 
and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In The Lion King, Disney celebrates the circle of life that moves us all. Well, now the Disney company itself is moving towards a new sustainability. After negotiations in the wake of protests from the Rainforest Action Network, Disney has announced it will reduce paper use and make sure all it does use is responsibly sourced and harvested. Disney, creator of many stories that inspire children's love of nature, is the world's largest publisher of children's books. But a 2010 study found that nine of the ten top American publishers of children's books, including Disney, used paper made from trees in Indonesia's endangered rainforests. Robin Averbeck is the forest campaigner for the Rainforest Action Network. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hi there, Steve. So last year, activists, I understand it, they, dr- they dressed up as Mickey and Minnie Mouse. They locked themselves to the gates of the Disney headquarters there in Los Angeles and hung a banner that read, Disney destroying Indonesia's forest. Disney dismissed it as a publicity stunt, but why has Disney had a change of heart since uh, the protests? Disney, you know, really didn't realize that they were getting paper from Indonesia and the fact that they were producing books, kids' books nonetheless, books about rainforests that contained Indonesian rainforests in them. And so it took a little bit of time for them to understand the issue, understand how this was ending up in their books, and uh, really (laughs) Minnie and Mickey arriving on their doorstep to deliver this message in no uncertain terms was a huge wake-up call for them and for their executives. To what extent were you involved in the original protest? I was there on site as a spokesperson and uh, a supporter to the activists, so I was quite involved. Had the first experience of seeing Minnie carted away and in uh, handcuffs. It was quite entertaining, but you know, just the visuals, the fact that Minnie was there to protest Indonesian rainforest destruction herself basically meant that the executives could not ignore this issue anymore. How big is Disney's book business? Disney is the world's largest children's book and magazine publisher, so that's a lot of paper. And in addition to that, you know, they're the largest operator of theme parks, the biggest licensor of toys. And so all of that is a lot of paper. So what is the deal now? Disney is going to use all sustainable trees in all of its operations? Basically, they're saying, you know, where possible, we're going to source the sources that we know are really good, like recycled paper. And then in other cases, you know, they have set out a whole set of principles that say, these are absolutely the type of paper sources we don't want to be involved in. We don't want to be involved in buying paper that where human rights are violated. We don't want to be involved in buying paper where natural forests are being converted to monoculture tree plantations. And so they basically set out a whole list of unwanted sources, is what they call them in the policy. Now, Disney is a large, large, large company. I think their sales are on the scale of $40 billion a year, publishing kids' books, but also they own ABC television. Uh, Does this policy mean that uh, when they're reading the scripts there on Good Morning America, that it will be from recycled paper, won't be from rainforest? That's absolutely true. 
This policy means that everything from the paper that's in a theme park map in Tokyo to exactly the scripts on, uh, you know, in ABC Studios in LA to, you know, the packaging that's used to wrap a princess doll being sold in Russia, all of those things are going to be on paper that meets Disney's new policy. At the end of the day, how much will Disney's decision actually influence the rates of deforestation in places like Indonesia? Well, we we hope a lot. Um, Disney manufactures its products in, you know, 25,000 factories around the world. And that means that that message is going to be sent throughout a very, very wide supply chain and reach, you know, 25,000 plus suppliers. To what effect is Disney's new policy on paper going to affect endangered species uh, in these regions? Well, in Indonesia specifically, this means that, you know, Disney is not going to be sourcing from any any area that is habitat, for example, Sumatran tigers. Sumatran tigers are directly threatened by the Indonesian pulp and paper industry. And then more widely than Indonesia, Disney's paper policy also means that they won't be sourcing from high conservation value areas, which is a lot of the critical habitat that's left for these animals. Now that the Rainforest Action Network has proven that sustainable paper is not Mickey Mouse, what's your next move? This policy itself is creating a lot of momentum. Basically, you know, if Disney can do something like this, a company as large as Disney, there's no reason that other companies can't do the same. So very specifically in the publishing industry, you know, we've gotten nine of the top 10 publishers to make a similar rainforest commitment. And the one remaining laggard is HarperCollins. So we certainly plan to profile HarperCollins in action compared to its colleagues. What does HarperCollins say when you ask them to join their colleagues in the publishing profession? Well, HarperCollins has largely ignored us. We have been in conversation with them for multiple years at this point, and they have been unwilling to take public action. Robin, what Disney character did you grow up with? I grew up with a lot of Disney characters. I remember being particularly fond of uh, the Lion King movie when it came out. (laughs) So Simba, Simba was close, near and dear to my heart. So how does it feel now that you have protected Simba's habitat? You know, I I had a moment when early on in our engagement, about two months after we entered into negotiations, Disney put out a statement to its suppliers urging them not to source from Indonesia. And uh, one of their team members called me and said, you know, we're sorry that this is taking so long. It's taken us three weeks to translate this into the number of languages it needs to be translated into to send it out to all of our suppliers. And that for me was a moment of realization about just how enormous the impact of this and the impact of Disney as a company could be. And so now you believe Walt Disney when you wish upon a star. (laughs) Uh, In the case of this paper purchasing policy, I certainly do. Robin Averbeck is the forest campaigner for the Rainforest Action Network, the organization that worked with Disney to develop its new paper policy. Thank you so much, Robin. Thank you so much, Steve. We contacted HarperCollins. They didn't comment about the Rainforest Action Network, but they did email this statement. HarperCollins paper procurement policies support the general goals of environmentally sustainable fiber use. 
reducing pollution, and conserving natural resources through recycling and waste reduction. We only use acceptable fiber sources and have worked with printers to eliminate the use of Indonesian fiber from books produced for HarperCollins. James Gustav Speth chaired the White House Council on Environmental Quality for President Carter, helped found the Natural Resources Defense Council and the World Resources Institute, and then ran the U.N. Development Program in the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. You'd hardly think that he's a radical with a resume like that, but Gus Speth was arrested in front of the White House for protesting the XL pipeline in 2011. He's now a professor at the Vermont Law School and writes that our politics are so corrupt and our environmental movement so weak that we are in peril. His new book is America the Possible, Manifesto for a New Economy. Do we want to merely revive the economy uh, with all its failings, uh, or do we want to transform the economy into one where the real priorities of economic activity in our country are people and place and planet? And uh, this old economy that everyone's struggling to revive was a pretty sad place. It still is a pretty sad place. Uh, During the period where economic growth went up 125 percent since 1980, we've had uh, inequality mount, poverty mount, jobs fled our borders. We lost 42,000 manufacturing plants. Uh, The environment declined. Life satisfaction flatlined. I mean, that's what happened in the old economy. And, you know, it, it is now already uh, higher GDP than it was before the Great Recession of 2008. And yet we still have all these problems. We need an economy that, you know, doesn't simply prioritize growth, but uh, more importantly, puts a priority on sustaining people, sustaining place, sustaining planet. What's wrong with GDP? Why do you see it as such a threat to uh, the environment uh, and our society? Well, I have a chapter on that in America the Possible. And... Uh, We need a new system of indicators that give us the right signals of whether we're making national progress. Uh, Bobby Kennedy in 1968 made a powerful attack on GDP and pointing out that it is simply an aggregation of every economic transaction in the society, whether it's good or bad or indifferent. And a lot of them are bad. And, you you know, you can ratchet up GDP by uh, having an oil spill in the Gulf. Bobby Kennedy was running for president back then. His words on how we measure the economy still resonate today. Here they are. Our gross national product now is over $800 billion a year. But that gross national product, if we judge the United States of America by that, that gross national product counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwoods and the loss of our natural wonder in chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm and it counts nuclear warheads and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. It counts Whitman's rifles and Specs knives and the television programs which glorify violence in order to sell toys to our children. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry, or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, 
for the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And it can tell us everything about America, except why we are proud that we are Americans. Just months after he gave that speech, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated. And GDP is still the measure of America's success. Again, Gus Speth. We need a, um, a really good measure of sustainable economic welfare that can go toe-to-toe with GDP every quarter. And there have been efforts to do that. And what they show is that during the past few decades, when GDP per capita went up and up and up, on average, you know, uh, life satisfaction and genuine progress indicator measure uh, flatlined during that period. Let's talk about money. In your book, America the Possible, you're quite critical of the way that uh, money is created in this society by banks. Detail to us what's wrong with that process and how you would change it. Most money that's in the society is is created by bank debt when people take out loans from banking institutions. So it gives the banking institutions tremendous power. I mean, money is a system of power. And um, the banks determine who gets money. And overwhelmingly, the process of investment in our society is chasing the highest financial return. That leads to many things that are highly destructive, such as investing in mountaintop removal and uh, tar sands and other things, which the big banks are doing now. And it leads to severe underinvestment in real social and environmental needs that um, don't yield a high financial return. In a new America, how would we address social inequality? I think compared with Europe, for example, we have a very weak unemployment insurance program. Uh, It reaches a smaller percentage of the unemployed and it compensates for a smaller percentage of wages. We could certainly improve our unemployment insurance program. We could certainly improve the minimum wage program. And through other means, including tilting the collective bargaining process and unionization process back towards organized labor, which we've tilted away from dramatically uh, in recent decades. And of course, the tax structure needs to be changed. In 1928, the top 1% of earners had about 24% of national income. It went down by the mid-70s to about 7% of national income. But now it's gone all the way back up again to about 24% of national income. So one goal that we ought to have for our society, in a way a minimum goal, is to return to the kind of uh, income equality that we had in the mid-70s. Not a terribly radical proposal because we were there at one time and it was a better place. And how does this affect the environment? The environment and the equity issues uh, go together. People that are economically insecure find it really hard to uh, address environmental issues when they, you know, have more pressing concerns with their pocketbooks. And when you try to do something like impose a charge, easily called a tax, on carbon emissions, and people see that that could raise gasoline prices and energy prices, and they already are having trouble paying those bills, they become opponents of doing the right thing to save the planet's climate. So we need a a more just economic system, and I think that would provide the basis for 
a more rigorous uh, environmental protection. Now, in your career, you've worked closely with elected officials. Uh, President uh, Jimmy Carter, you chaired the Council on Environmental Quality for him, advised uh, Bill Clinton. You've been close to electoral politics. In your view, what's wrong with our democracy now, and how do you think we should fix it? Well, we certainly have um, what I call the creeping corporatocracy and, and plutocracy. You see the plutocracy, the money taking power in our politics uh, every day now. Corporations uh, spend a lot more on lobbying than they do on campaigns, a lot more. We always have known that corporations were the principal economic actors in our system, but I would say that they are now the principal political actors in our system. And I think there are things that we need to do. We need to start by securing the voters. People automatically be registered to vote uh, when they get to be age 18. That's common in uh, advanced industrial countries. And uh, we need to make voting easier, a longer uh, time ahead of the election day to vote, have a national holiday on election day. The other big thing we need to do is to enact a type of campaign finance reform that really works. And the latest proposal would be, you know, if you make a, a small contribution, $250 to a president or someone running for Congress, the federal government would match that five to one. You know, if you had enough supporters, uh, you could raise enough money to run a competitive campaign. So your book, America the Possible, Gus Speth, uh, The Manifesto for a New Economy, is a huge, broad vision that would change almost everything in America. The question is, how do you get there from here? If the political system is broken, how can you get political change? Well, I'm going to make a prediction, which is that when this election is over, there are going to be so many people fed up with what we have experienced in the process that there could well be a confluence of, uh, of interest coming together to enact a set of pro-democracy political uh, reforms. I, I think we need an era uh, to revive an era of protest, uh, uh, to revive an era of marches and uh, demonstrations and nonviolent uh, civil disobedience. If it's done in the right way, it can build support and um, it can dramatize the need for change. We saw that with the civil rights movement, and uh, we need that kind of fervor. Again, if we're going to you know, build the America of the possible for our grandchildren. Thank you, Gus, for coming in. Thank you, Steve. Vermont Law School professor Gus Smith. His book is America the Possible, Manifesto for a New Economy. Produced by the World Media Foundation, Bobby Bascom, Helen Palmer, Annie Sneed, James Kerwood, Megan Miner, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza all help to make our show, and so does our intern, Emmett Fitzgerald. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. 
Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at paxworld.com. Pax World, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.